soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Just a little bit of background. We're only going to read these stories quite quickly, but just before we move to the next one. This is a particularly tragic situation. It's a single parent home. There's a widow and her only son. That's in some ways quite an intense relationship. It means her son is probably the one she depends on. Looks as though he was not just a child by this point. General feeling of the passage. So she probably depended on him for, for the future. This boy would be her means of security as she grew old. He would perhaps find, uh, find a wife and she'd be part of that family or even if he didn't find a wife, he would earn the bread for the home. So she was probably facing not only a very lonely future, very lonely, but also one of helplessness and impoverished state. And she'd perhaps end up dependent on charity at best. But in this dire situation, Jesus intervenes and brings a miracle to her family and restores her son to life. Now we're going to look at the two-parent family, which is perhaps slightly more the traditional or, or, or conventional family situation. And to do that, you need to move on to Luke 8, the next chapter, Luke chapter 8. Again, the verses will come up. I'm not going to read the whole of verses 40 to uh, 56, but I just want to read, first of all, verses 40 to 42, which give us the background in Luke 8, and then drop down to verse 49. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. What happens in between you probably know, if you know the Bible, but is that on the way to Jairus' house, a woman with a gynaecological problem, severe bleeding, who she's had for 12 years, touches Jesus' garment in faith and is healed. And Jesus stops, commends her for her faith. There is a sort of little interchange, which is quite dramatic. But in that time, Jairus' daughter dies. So we pick it up at verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her up by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So here again, we've got a 
tragic situation. A conventional family, actually, being a synagogue ruler, which is what Jairus is, was probably quite a reasonable standing in Jewish society. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say it's probably a middle-class family by our sort of terminology. And uh, quite well-respected, but of course, he's laid aside some of his dignity in just coming to Jesus to ask for the healing of his daughter. Perhaps uh, many of his contemporaries in the synagogue would have been a bit snippy about this outlandish prophet uh, preacher, Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah. But Jairus doesn't care. He needs his daughter healed. But what was a bad situation gets worse. She dies. But into that, Jesus intervenes. And this lovely scene, the tender scene, where he takes the, the hand of the little corpse, really, and says, my child, get up. And she, life is restored and she gets up. So that's the two-parent family. Now we're going to look at the singles household. The third raising from the dead is in John's Gospel, chapter 11. Before we put the scripture up, I'll give you the background, because there's quite a lot of Bible here, so I, I, I want to talk a little bit rather than read it all. This is a singles household. This is two sisters and a brother who live together. Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And uh, they form a very warm and loving family atmosphere. It's clearly a welcoming household. Verse 5 of chapter 11 tells us Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Jesus loved being with them. And actual fact, as you read your Gospels, you realise their home was a base for Jesus and the disciples when they were in Bethany, in the area around Bethany where they lived. So it was a very welcoming, warm environment of three unmarried adults together and into that situation Jesus loved to come with his disciples and relax. There are plenty of singles households that form families. It can be brothers and sisters, it can be sometimes other relatives in combination or it can just be close friends, good friends who can form a warm, welcoming environment who can be hospitable where people can be welcomed and enjoy coming. I believe there are many families like that around us here. It's an increasing trend and It is something to be recognised. But this family also suffered tragedy, real tragedy. Lazarus fell ill. And again, it's a bit like Jairus. The the word comes to Jesus to come and heal him, and Jesus inexplicably, really, delays for two days, and then has to travel to Bethany, and during that time, Lazarus dies. So we'll now pick up the story in verse 17 of chapter 11. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly they got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a grave with a, a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odour. He's been there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth about his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes. said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So here we have four, three, no I can count, three, three remarkable accounts of Jesus raising the dead. They're the only three recorded and they're all, although they're extraordinary incidents, they're all in very ordinary settings. Settings that actually we can relate to. A single parent who loses their only child Ordinary, middle of the road, should we say, family, husband and wife, got a lovely little daughter, 12, dies. And then these singles, love each other, get on well together, brothers and sisters, always have others round, singles like Jesus, uh, and some of his disciples welcomed in, different sort of environment, but very warm and welcoming, and tragedy strikes. One of them dies, Lazarus dies. What does God want to say to us from this? That's what I've got on my heart, I want to share in the next few minutes. Really, it's not... Not much, really. It's just a few clear thoughts which I want you to get. But to understand them, you need to get this first and foremost. The Bible is very clear. If you want to know what God is like, I think we put this on, the, on, the, on a screen. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That is clearly the teaching of the New Testament. I could take you to a number of places. I'll just quickly give you two verses. One is going again on the screen, John 10.30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He said many other things. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I am bringing to you the Father. His God manifested the flesh. And he was bringing the clearest revelation of the Father's heart possible. When Paul's writing to the Colossians, in Colossians 2.9, he puts it like this, again on the screen. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, just let that sink in. This is Christian theology. This is the full teaching of the Bible, and real Christians have always held it for 2,000 years. That Jesus was, is God manifest in the flesh. That he has the fullness of the deity in his bodily form. So, what we're seeing in Jesus is the clearest picture of God and the heart of God. Now, just get that, because there's a lot of 
false information about today about God. A lot of false information. A lot of stuff is said which is very critical, you know, why does God do this? Well, he must be this, he must be that. You probably all heard it, some of you probably said it. But what I want you to actually get this morning, to get nothing else, is if you really want to know what God's like, look at Jesus Christ. That is the big, clearest, biggest picture of what God is like. And so I want to draw out three characteristics that clearly come out from Jesus. The first one is compassion. Just the word compassion. Compassion. In Luke 7, verse 13, which will go up on the screen, when the Lord saw her, this is the widow of Nain, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. This miracle with the widow of Nain is driven purely by compassion. Those of you who know your Gospels will know that many of the miracles respond to people's requests. Maybe it's even the friends who bring the man and they lower him through the roof, or it's a parent, as in Jairus' case, or, or, or it's somebody else, or it's the person themselves. Often, also, in the stories of healings in the, in the Gospels, people's faith is commended. People's faith is commented on. Neither of those things apply to the widow of Nain. She doesn't ask for anything. Her friends, her mourners don't ask for anything. There is no comment on faith. It is a sovereign act of compassion. Jesus just breaks in. His heart is moved by what he sees and he breaks in and changes the whole thing. God is a God of compassion. We don't deserve anything from him. It's all grace. But actually God does more good than you realise. He's a good God. He's a God of compassion. Jesus comes and almost interrupts the whole procedure, which he does do. Stops the, the hearse moving, the beer being carried along. And he interrupts it and he says, in a startling, touching thing, don't cry. Actually, first of all, that's almost odd. I mean, it's compassionate, but like she's got plenty to cry about. But within a few seconds, the foundation of that, that, that wonderful compassionate statement is clear. He raises up the sun. He has the answer. So the, it, God is not just a God of sympathy, don't cry. There's some action behind it. There's a reason not to cry. There's a reason to rejoice. The whole thing is changed. When you look at the story of Lazarus particularly, this business of compassion comes out even more clearly. Look at chapter, uh, it's going to go up, uh, John 11 verse 33. You get some remarkable phrases. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now remember, this is God's heart. This is God's heart. Now some of you are going to say, I've got some philosophical tangles with this. You may have. But you have to receive the Bible's revelation and understand it. God is not a hard-hearted God. You can say, well, why did they... We can say, why did these people die in the first place? We can sit and be sophisticated and philosophical about it. But the Bible deals with the reality of our lives in this sin-sick world. The reality of a, a sin-sick, spoiled environment in which sinful people live and stuff happens all the time. That's what the Bible deals with. And it tells us that Jesus, when he saw this tragedy, was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now apparently, I'm no Greek scholar actually, but as you look at the dictionaries and things, that phrase that's translated deeply moved in spirit is a more powerful word. It, here's a dictionary definition. It's a loud, inarticulate noise, like a groan or an angry snort. 
So then Jesus went, oh! Well, he didn't just, he wasn't just upset. There was an inarticulate noise, like an angry groan. You can imagine what it is. Why is he angry? Why is he, oh! Jesus goes. When he sees them all crying and weeping over the death of Lazarus. Jesus is angry at death. He's angry at sin. There's an anger in his spirit at the sorrow that's been caused. Do you realise death is an enemy from the Bible's point of view? It's described as the last enemy. Death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. It was not meant to be like this. This is not supposed to be happening all the time. This is a result of sin and rebellion. Death is an enemy. Heaven's perspective is not that death's okay to be welcomed. It's the end of everything and peace. Heaven knows things happen after death. Death is part of the, the turmoil that sin has brought. It's the wages of sin. And Jesus is grieved in his spirit and moved deeply. Then look at verse 35. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. If you ever get that in a quiz, pub quiz, you learnt it here. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. But it's a powerful verse, isn't it? Jesus wept. Jesus gets to the tomb and he weeps. Apparently the original word is not a wailing like probably would have been going on with the formal mourners, but it's just a quiet, deep weeping, sobbing. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows everything, doesn't he? He's the end from the beginning. But our God cares. Our God cares. He weeps. Weeps, sort of things I've already said. Weeps for the grief around him, for Mary, for Martha. Weeps about the whole thing. He's got all these people grieving around him. And, and some of them are ignorant. He perhaps weeps for the whole fact that humanity is bound by fear of death. Jesus was going to change that. He was going to bring victory for those who all their lives are bound by the fear of death. We all are afraid of death. Most of the scary stuff we have all the time on the television, fear, 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 it's really at root about death. You know, it might be a flu epidemic or swine flu or it's this or it's that, but it's fear of death. We're all scared of it. Of course we are. I mean, there's bravery, we all face it, and all the rest of it, but I'm talking about it's something that is just in it all, in the whole fabric, is a fear of death. It's why we worry about safety and all the rest of it. And, and Jesus just must have sensed it. All around him, people who felt helpless and hopeless felt that death and darkness were in total control. And he just wept. He just wept. And then in verse 38 again, we won't go over it for long, the same word is used. At the tomb, Jesus once more moved Moved, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Now, that's the same word that we had earlier. There's that groaning, that deep groaning as he stands at the tomb. What I want you to get, get it, here is a God with emotions. Our God has emotions, he made us. Here's a God who's prepared to be involved in the mess of life on this planet. Jesus is down here weeping and grieving, battling with death. He knows he's going to bring the real answer when he dies. He's going to taste death for everyone. It's a powerful truth. And our God is a God involved. He's a God who is involved in the mess of a sin-sick world. Jesus understands our feelings. He knows what it is. He's experienced them. He knows what the fear is. He can feel it and taste it. He knows what the grief is. 
And Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. And his heart is still compassionate. God is a God of compassion, willing to help us even when we don't expect it, like the widow of Nain, or even when we think it's too late, like Mary and Martha. God will intervene when you don't expect it and when it's too late. Maybe you just came along for politeness with relatives this morning. Well, God will intervene. Jesus will meet you, change you. I'm going to be very quick. I just want to look at another one, see, concern. I won't spend long on this. It's a bit linked to the first one. The point I want to make here is that Jesus is not just interested, it's not just emotion. He's not just sympathetic with people's emotion. There is action. Obviously, the biggest action is the resurrections of the three people, but there's more to it than that. We haven't got verses to put up, so I'll just quickly refer to them. One thing is when Jesus touches the dead body of the widow name. Now, actually, it says that all the people carrying the body stopped. It wouldn't have been a coffin. It would have been a body on a plank, just covered in a sheet. <clears throat> and it says everybody stopped. Why did they stop? Because nobody in Jewish culture touched the dead body if you could avoid it. It was making you unclean. But Jesus, in his action and compassion, is not bothered with ceremony and convention. He just puts a hand out and stops it, which is itself a compassionate act. When the young man's raised from the dead, it says he gave him back to his mother. Again, wonderful, wonderful, tender touch. This is no distant holy man. This is no aloof showman. This is no miracle worker up here doing some magic. He's right in with them. He touches the bear. He, he, he hands the son back to the woman. Similarly with Jairus, you'll see him saying, comforting, strengthening them. Don't be afraid. Keep your faith. You believed I could heal? Hang on. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. Keep believing. That's a sort of almost psychological encouragement as well as a, a theological exhortation. And then when the little girl's raised, he says, give us something to eat. <laughs> Jesus doesn't sort of just go, ooh, I've raised, now take me away in my limousine. He, give us something to eat. It's a concern about her detail. And the same we find rather similarly with Lazarus. Basically, he's thinking about the people and their practical needs. What I want you to know is that God is not a stuffy God. He's not up there not interested in the details of our lives. He knows about the details and he cares about them. That's clear as well. But the last point I want to make is the most important. The conqueror. Jesus is the conqueror. This is what we see above all else in these passages. The mighty saviour, the son of God who gives hope in the face of of sin and sickness and despair. Jesus has power over death and the grave. Hallelujah! (laughs) That authority comes through again and again. He he speaks, young man, I say to you, get up. My child, get up. Lazarus, come out. And you sense the authority of the Creator. What I want you to know, again, one of those basic things, get it please, this morning. Death is not the end. Now, there's a lot in the Bible I could take you to, but just one verse we saw in passing, won't go on the screen. Luke Luke chapter 8, verse 55, it says, When Jesus said to the little girl, Jairus' daughter, My child, get up. It says, Her spirit returns. Did you notice that? Her spirit returns. We're not just flesh and blood. There is more to life than meets the eye. It's not just materialism. There is more 
than we can think that's in our philosophy. There's a lot more. There's more than we can weigh and measure. There is a God and there is life beyond the grave. And in these cases, the voice of God, as it were, reunited. And in this case, it was mentioned. Her spirit returned to her and the little girl rose up. Death is not as natural as we think, as I said earlier. It's an intruder in a fallen world. And these three incidents remind us that one day there will be total victory over death and hell and sin. And that Jesus is the one with the keys of death and of hell, who himself was later to rise in the power of an endless life. I love readings of an old writer, 19th century bishop called Ryle, who I love reading on the Gospels. And he, I just like, I'm just going to quote it, what he says about this incident. In all three cases, he's talking about these three things. In all three cases, we see an exercise of divine power. In each, we see a comfortable proof that the Prince of Peace is stronger than the King of Terrors. And that though death, the last enemy, is mighty, he is not so mighty as the sinner's friend. That's good, isn't it? Death's mighty, he's not as mighty as the sinner's friend. Hallelujah. That's about death itself. But we can justifiably use these stories as an illustration of something else. The Bible says we are dead in our sins. Ephesians 2.1 That means all of us are spiritually dead until Jesus meets us. We're cut off from our creator. What by? By sin. What's that? Selfishness, pride, greed, envy, lust, fear, most sorts of fear, and the fruits that all those things produce, some of which are very gross, some of which seem very minor. But sin has produced a spiritual death in us which cuts us off from God. But God had compassion on us and he sent Jesus to save us from our sins. To die for us, to give us new life. To reconcile us to himself. God wants us reconciled to him. He wants you to know God. You can know God through Jesus Christ. There is a lot of trouble and a lot of woe and a lot of weeping in the world and in family life as well. But genuinely, Jesus is the answer one way or the other to all of it. One way or the other, we need to meet the life giver, Jesus, who came to bring life where there's death. Now, in these stories, we have a living picture of Jesus' power to bring hope where hope's gone, to bring spiritual life where there's spiritual death. He can say to hearts that are hard and cold, corrupt and lifeless, he can say, arise, get up. When we're dead in our sins, he can quicken us. Don't ever despair for anyone. When I was just coming to the end here, I I felt that some of you are grieving for children. Children who are spiritually dead, not physically dead. Come to Jesus the life giver and ask him to make them alive. Don't be afraid. Believe. What about your brothers and sisters? Maybe it's not a child, it's a close relative like Lazarus was. You feel he's just dead. There's no hope. Don't be afraid. Put your faith in Jesus. He can give life where there is no life. They're dead in their sins. He can make them alive. Ask him. Your son may seem to be being carried 
along a remorseless path to destruction in the grave, like the widow of Nain. He's methodically being carried to the grave. But Jesus can stop his progress and he can say to him, young man, get up. Jesus can say to your son, young man, get up. You think, he's, he's headed for destruction. He's just being carried to the grave. He's being carried into worse and worse sin and turmoil. Pray for Jesus. He can still speak life where there's death. Young man, get up. Maybe you've got a daughter who's got worse and worse. We're not thinking physically, we're thinking spiritually at the moment. There's no spark of spiritual life left in her. Jesus can take your lifeless daughter's hand and say, my child, get up. Jesus can speak life into your unconverted child, into your lost child. He can speak life, he does. Maybe it's a relative like a brother who seems long dead to God. So dead he spiritually stinks. He's switched off completely to God. Well, Jesus can stand where he's bound and locked up and say, come out. Jesus does that for all of us. I didn't find Jesus, he found me. The Holy Spirit can intervene and break into the darkest heart, honestly. We need to believe that. We need to believe that this voice can still raise the dead. We need Jesus to meet us in the middle of family troubles. And he may surprise us with what he does, as he does here. With Jesus, nothing is impossible. And whether we're thinking of real physical death and destruction and hell, or we're thinking of spiritual death, let's finish by remembering what Jesus said to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. 